Welcome to part six in an eight-part series where we're looking at identity from a distinctly Christian perspective. We spent the first three weeks laying the foundation, and then in week four what we did is we looked at a passage where Jesus sent his disciples out as sheep among wolves, and what instructions did he give him for that? Last week, we had a very candid conversation about sexual identity, and what we're going to do today is have a candid conversation about gender identity. All right, if you're ready to dive in, here we go. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Clinical conversations about gender dysphoria go back many decades. Now, if you ask 10 different people to define gender dysphoria, you probably get 10 different definitions. In general, the term gender dysphoria describes a sense in which you feel as though your authentic self is at odds with your biological body, that you sometimes will feel or always feel like you belong in a different body. All right, there's also lots of disagreement as to when people first started to document this in a clinical sense and to study gender dysphoria. These clinical conversations, though, appear at least to go back several decades. Now, there are so many different directions we could go from here, so many different conversations that we could have today. And one of the reasons that we created the resource hub, identityseries.org, is because we, we, we know this and understand this. And what we tried to do is to point you towards a whole lot of really great resources where you can go and find answers or thinking around the questions that you have, the very specific questions you have. At, at identityseries.org, like we've been saying, you're going to be able to find resources, books, videos, and opportunities that can help you with your specific questions. If this conversation is impacting you or your family personally, the section that I want to steer you to directly is to the resources section. And there you're going to find an organization called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. They offer webinars and conferences and a community where you can go and be a part of. And why they exist is to be able to help people who are right in the midst of this to try to... to wrestle with what does this mean? What does this look like? This is, is their primary focus. So my point of bringing that up is you don't have to walk alone. There's organizations, there's people, there's resources to help you along the way. We'd certainly love to do that too. And what we're going to focus our attention on today is right at ground zero where I've seen the most confusion. I've seen the most controversy. Today, what we're going to discuss is the rapid rise in the number of young people who identify as trans. Now, there's another word that I'm going to hit pause and, and give some definition around for those who are not familiar with the term. And like gender dysphoria, you ask 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different definitions. Generally, what the word trans uh, refers to are a wide range of identities that don't align with the normal stereotypes that are traditionally associated with their biology. So, for example, a trans man often describes a biological female who identifies as male. A trans woman is often a biological male who identifies as a female. Trans individuals are often in the process of transitioning, and that can be in different ways. It could be socially, where it's how they present themselves, through how they dress, how they look. It might be hormonally, as they're taking injections or other different treatments, or it could be surgically where physical bodies are being altered to appear more male or to appear more female. Now, right up until just a few decades ago, documented accounts of gender dysphoria, they were very, very, very rare. 
from a clinical sense, um, as people were trying to study these things, the, the instances were rare. The most common statistic I've seen referenced is one in 10,000. And then up until recently, another thing that was pretty consistent was the number of men who were experiencing gender dysphoria was higher than the number of women as far as the percentage of the population. Then, over the course of about a 10-year span, things changed dramatically. Now, in the UK, where I'm told it's easier to track, the number of people experiencing gender dysphoria increased by about 4,000%. And another interesting thing happened where, where it had once been that the number of men, or at least the percentage of men, was much higher than women, that inverted in that same period of time. Now, when something changes that rapidly and when the statistics themselves invert, a wise person would ask, why? What's going on here? If you're taking notes, here's a question that is worth asking. How do experts explain the rapid rise in the number of people who identify as trans? The short answer to that is they respond differently. They respond differently. There's a large group of physicians and mental health professionals who believe that the rapid rise is easy to explain. Some would argue that there is now more exposure than ever before, more awareness than ever before, more acceptance than ever before, and there's more helpful and affirming categories than ever before. So there's a growing group of people who would say that it's now finally safe for people to come out. And then there's others who would say it's not that simple, not that simple. There's a large group of physicians and mental health professionals who believe that it isn't that simple. They point to the fact that the vast majority of people who are coming out are often young, and they often appear to be influenced by our culture, their friends, and other factors. Now, as I've been trying to sort through this as best I can, one of the voices I've come to respect, not just recently, but over the years, is a guy named Mark Yarhouse. I had the opportunity, actually, to meet him about 10 years ago. Back then... I remember around Mark, there was all of this buzz. And a lot of the buzz was, this guy is so liberal, the buzz in Christian circles. Today, interestingly enough, the buzz that I hear around him around in Christian circles is often, oh, that guy is so conservative. And having known of him and some of his research, I haven't seen his position really changing. It's interesting to see, though, how our culture has. How our culture has. Well, one of the things I respect so much about Dr. Yarhouse is that he has consistently demonstrated courage. And what I mean by that is he will challenge popular cultural narratives, and he's done it both on the right and on the left. In his practice as a clinical psychologist, Dr. Yarhouse, he says, I know women who are in their 60s, and when it wasn't popular, when it wasn't widespread, they had experienced and were, were telling me stories of how this had been a part of their life as long as they can remember. He's also highly aware that there is a rapid uptick among young girls who are now presenting as transgender. And he, he observes, as many of us do, that they are, seem to be following very similar themes. So, all this to say, he sees enough evidence to say this isn't as simple as a fad. And he also is honest enough to say it sure looks as though this is much more than simply an increase in people feeling more safe and an increase in reporting. In his experience, he believes it's important to, quote, 
recognize multiple layers of explanation. I love that wording. He also says this, if there is greater complexity in play, quote, reducing this complexity is not only unhelpful, it's unkind. It keeps us from responding in a nuanced and adequate way, both to the underlying factors and to the people for whom these factors may have lasting impacts. Now, so he's saying these things in a time when we are really being pressured to choose a side. The side that says people are trans because it's a social contagion or the side that says it's finally safe to come out. Now, before we turn this into an either or, before you turn this into an either or, I want to challenge you here. Here's one of the most important reminders that I came across as I prepared this series. And there's a place to write this down in your notes if you downloaded those. If you've met one person who identifies as trans, you have met one person who identifies as trans. I think that is one of the most helpful principles you can have in this entire conversation. Every individual has a story, and that story is uniquely theirs. Their story also, like all of our stories, it's often very complex. If you met one person, you've met one person. All men are not the same. All women are not the same. All people who identify with a particular political party or sexual identity or gender identity are not all the same. As Christians, the founder of our movement has provided an exceptional framework for this important and complex conversation that we're in. Here's a quick snapshot of Jesus' framework for cultural engagement. Number one, it is truth-seeking. Jesus taught his disciples, the truth will set you free. And there are about a hundred references to truth in the New Testament alone. Discerning truth, listening to truth, telling the truth, practicing the truth, walking in the truth, obeying the truth, rejoicing in the truth, bearing witness to the truth, and speaking the truth in love. It is in our DNA as believers. Jesus' framework for culture engagement. It is truth-seeking rather than narrative-defending. And this is also true of his framework for culture engagement. It's compassionate. It's compassionate. Why are we so committed to truth? Why? Because we care about people. We want to see people flourishing. We don't flourish when we're not walking in the truth. One author, historian and theologian put it this way. He says, I can't climb up to the top of the Empire State Building and jump off the top expecting to flourish. The reason, the reason that we're doing this series is because we care. It would be so easy right now to just sit on the sidelines. But there's a lot of people who are hurting right now. There's a whole lot of people who are making decisions that are going to affect the rest of their life right now. Compassion compels us to respond. All right, here's one more thing that Jesus recommends or reminded his disciples. If we're going to be a follower of his, if we're going to engage our culture, it's going to often require courage. It's going to often require courage. One of the reoccurring themes that I came across over and over and over again is the pressure. Pressure that people are under to conform to the narratives on the religious and political right or on the religious and political left. The word phobic. I'm getting so tired of the misuse of the word phobic. The one place I do see it is people set, tend to get really triggered. Their phobia seem to get triggered here as soon as you start to question their narrative. It's as if they're just afraid to have hard questions come their way or for people to start asking questions themselves. I was shocked 
I was shocked to hear how many doctors, how many teachers, how many counselors, how many pastors, how many reporters are being pressured to not ask questions, to not raise and bring into the conversation data that contradicts the narrative. They're often being pressured to go against their own training. They're being pressured to go against research. They're being pressured to go against common sense. And one that really seems puzzling to me, they're even being pressured to, to go against their own lived experience. Here's one example of this. There's a woman named Rachel Gilson. We recommend um, one of her resources in our, on our identityseries.org. She experiences same-sex attraction, and she says this, in a culture where pursuing your desire for same-sex gender romance would mark you as a hero, denying it makes you a villain. Jesus taught us a different way. He taught us a better way. All right, well, if you have your Bible at home, I want to invite you, let's look at his words. Let's look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible at home, you could go right now to Bible.com, download a free Bible app. It's a great one. We encourage you to do that. Matthew was one of Jesus' original disciples. And his account of Jesus' life may be the single most extensive collection of his sayings in the entire New Testament. The section that we're going to look at today, in it, Jesus casts a vision for what an authentic community of his followers could look like. He paints this picture of a community that's characterized by humility and integrity and accountability and grace and reconciliation and restoration. And he did not hold back when it comes to sharing how much he cares about young people. Take a look at this, verses one through four. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This isn't the only place that Jesus said something like this. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Jesus of Nazareth welcomed young people. Not easy to be young. Now imagine you're young and you feel like you don't belong in your own body. Every story is unique. And one of the things I'm seeing about a lot of people's stories who identify as trans, there are also higher levels of anxiety, higher levels of depression, There's often eating disorders, feelings of isolation and not fitting in, thoughts of suicide. And let me add this. In addition to these extra challenges that these young people are facing, I've seen enough with parents to know they're struggling too. It's important to remember that we don't just welcome at our our church, at this community that's trying to be like a Jesus community. It's important to remember that we need to welcome parents. It's been said that when a young person comes out, their Christian parents are the ones that often go into the closet. Brothers and sisters, that should need not be so. All right, let's make this a safe and welcoming place for kids and their parents. All right, how protective does Jesus feel towards young people? Consider the strength of what he says next. Let's look at verses five and six. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck 
and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, a millstone, that was this, this stone that was used to grind grain into flour. And there were different types and different words that describe these different types. The type that's being described here is not the kind that you could hold in your hand. It was so big that they would use a donkey to turn this thing. Jesus is saying, it is better for you to have one of those massive millstones tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the depths of the sea. It is better for that to happen than for you to lead one of these little ones down the, and put them in harm's way, leading them down the wrong path. Verse 7 says this, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. Look at this. But woe to the one by whom that temptation comes. You know where else this language is used? This strong language? When Judas betrays Jesus. Let's put both of these slides on the same screen, these two verses, Matthew 18, 7, and also verse 26, 24. Look at that. The Son of Man goes as, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. All right, if you're taking notes, here is something that is worth noting that is a, a huge challenge here. Jesus of Nazareth advocated for young people. And that advocation there, that advocacy, I should say, that's worth our best efforts. There's a trend, and it absolutely baffles me. The trend is for medical and mental health providers, not all of them, but many of them, to look at kids and, and have them self-diagnose when it comes to these highly complex matters of gender dysphoria. There are countless others who are encouraging minors to begin transitioning in ways that are irreversible. If you haven't already, I want to recommend that you go to YouTube. Type in the word detransitioners. The reason I would say to do YouTube where you've got videos because I want, I want you to hear it in their own words. Hear these things. And, and, and if I'm able to this week, I'll send out an ECC mail that's got some links, some examples of this. Again, I want to encourage you to listen to the detransitioners, their, their stories in their words. People who once felt as though, man, I, I am trans. They got started on that pathway and now they have huge regret because they thought it's more complicated than that. One of the common themes in those tragic stories is that the adults in their lives allowed them to cast the deciding vote in a choice that wasn't age appropriate. Does every person who physically transitioned regret their decision? No. No, they don't. Should every kid have advocates who prevent them from getting fast-tracked on a path towards irreversible damage to their bodies as minors? Yes. So here are four practical ways that you can advocate for kids. Four practical ways. Number one, advocate for parental consent and a loving listening posture. Number two, advocate for full disclosure of research and medical risks. Number three, advocate for holistic assessments. And number four, advocate for social media safety seats. Let me quickly explain what I mean by each of those. There are so many reasons why our culture has a long history of requiring parental consent, especially in significant decisions that affect a minor's long-term future. And I'm not aware of anything in addition to that that, that makes a bigger long-term difference in a minor's physical or mental health like having a mom and a dad who, even if they disagree, they, able, they, they present this loving, listening posture towards their kids. 
All right, so let's advocate for parental consent and loving, listening posture. Two, let's also be advocates for full disclosure when it comes to medical research and, and risks. As we've been saying throughout this series, we are fearfully and we're wonderfully made. How deep does that go? You can identify men and women by their bones. Consider that. You can tell the difference by our bones. When you attempt to transition through hormones and surgery, go in with eyes wide open because you are going to battle against your body. And if this decision involves a minor, they are starting down a path that will take this future choice that they might otherwise have to have a child of their own. You're taking that choice away from them at an age where their brains aren't even fully formed. So let's be advocates for parental consent. Let's be advocates for full disclosure when it comes to research and medical risks. And let's be advocates for holistic assessments. Here's what I mean by that. And if we have time next week, I want to pick up on this because this is so significant. We are complex. We're complex. And if we're experiencing serious anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts, there are almost always multiple factors. There also appears to be, this also appears to be the case when it comes to gender dysphoria. And there's a growing number of people who, with hindsight, they look back and they say that their feelings of being trapped in the wrong body, many people later in life say it was, it was very complicated. That was complicated. And one of the common narratives that I heard as I began taking my own journey of listening and, and learning was very often I heard people say the line, I'd rather have a living son than a dead daughter. And as I dug deeper into that, and I spoke with doctors, and I spoke with mental health professionals, and I listened to testimonies of parents and people who attempted suicide, it became clear it's not that simple. Transitioning does not guarantee that those feelings are going to go away. In fact, there's a growing body of testimonies and evidence that says for at least many people, the opposite is true. So let's be advocates for going to root causes and, and bringing in everything holistically to bear. All right, and finally, let's be advocates for what I'm going to call social media safety seats. Our cultures learn the hard way. When it comes to vehicles, we needed to create safety measures to keep people safe on the roads. We, over the course of decades, we, we put into place speed limits and seat belts and special safety measures for kids. The single, parents, if you listen right now, the single biggest difference that you can make is to, when it comes to media and social media, to put loving limits around consumption. Media, especially social media. All right, let's go back to our text one more time. Let's jump ahead to verses 11 through 14. 11 through 14. For see that you do not despise these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices more over it than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the passage, interestingly enough, where the idea behind guardian angels comes from. 
But there's that, that's not what I want to draw your attention to today. What I want us to focus on as we bring today's teaching to a close is this, that once again, Jesus uses the rich imagery of a good shepherd. One of the things a good shepherd does is help a lamb that's lost find its way home. I'm about to say something that many of you are not going to agree with. And for those who are watching, you're probably going to go, what's new? I didn't agree with a lot of these things you said. But before you reject this completely, reflect on it. The most loving voices are often the voices who care enough to tell us something that we don't want to hear. Let me say that again. The most loving voices are often the voices who care enough to tell us something that we don't want to hear. If we're going to follow the example of Jesus, here's one more thing that I'd like to add about what he did. Jesus discipled young people. He discipled them. And often that will require us saying things that they don't want to hear, that you don't want to hear. A few weeks ago, I was in my car. I heard someone say this. Religious kids are less naive. Now, it'd be interesting to have a conversation with Sam here, who's doing the recording, you know, that I push back on that. I push back on that. I push back on it because I knew a whole lot of kids growing up who were in these little religious bubbles, and a lot of them were so naive. But this radio host was not talking about that. He was talking about kids who were intentionally being discipled every day, every day. Kids and teens are bombarded by emotionally compelling videos and articles. Compelling cultural narratives are being told and sold to them. In fact, just today, just today, I was doing some fact-checking. I was on a Wikipedia article about a man named Ken Zucker that we, we might talk about more next week. And I could see right there in that article, you could see people trying so hard to push a narrative by trying to disguise what they were putting down as, as facts, as presenting facts. They were trying to push the narrative, but disguise it as presenting facts. And I see that happening everywhere. I see it happening everywhere. Ironically, some of the most naive people you'll ever meet consider themselves the most informed. My own eyes have been opened a lot wider. I've had a whole lot of conversations with doctors, with mental health professionals, who encourage me to follow the money. That's something I never thought I'd be told as I went into this conversation. It said, follow the money. They also, they, it was the number of people I talked to who they themselves no longer look to organizations like the AMA. Doctors who don't look to the AMA. Mental health professionals who don't look to the APA. And, are, and people who are a lot more skeptical of tools like the DSM because of how political, politicized politicize these organizations and tools have become. And also this, how much pressure is being exerted on people who offer up data, who offer up, offer up research that doesn't fit those narratives. Mark Yarhouse, who is really, really, really measured in what he does and doesn't say, even he said this, in short, trans is not just an identity, it's an industry. In a world, where you can't even trust your eyes anymore. You've ever seen some of those videos where they, you, it makes it look like you're seeing one thing and then they pull back the filters and you're like, I was looking at something completely different. My eyes were deceived. In a world where even our eyes can be deceived. Wow. When in, a, in a world where you can't trust your eyes, let's recommit to discipling our young people 
with the same kind of humility and integrity and compassion and commitment to the truth that Jesus modeled and taught. One last quote. As Christians who take seriously the fall, we know that people are not always reliable judges of their own well-being. One of the most remarkable invitations in all of Scripture is that we can do more than just set out to follow Jesus. We can be filled with the Spirit of Christ. We can become new creations. We can become what the Bible describes as born again. And from that childlike place, we can discover what Scripture means when it says that we are His workmanship, fearfully and wonderfully made, created in Christ to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. If you want to discover a deeper, authentic self, put your X right there and start digging. Put your X on this invitation that we find here in Scripture to what the Bible could describe as finding our identity in Christ, to be in Christ. Here's one final question for you. We saved the most important one for last. Have you ever received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? If you decide to say yes, you are not saying yes to a cold, outdated moral code. I learned something last week that I never knew before. There's a song, a song that swept through churches about 30 years ago, but I never heard the backstory. The name of the guy who wrote the song is Dennis Jernigan, and the song was born out of his own story, his own story of receiving Christ as his Savior and Lord. His story includes a whole lot of sexual brokenness, including acting on same-sex attractions that filled him with guilt and filled him with shame. Well, one day, Dennis was at a place where worship songs were being sung, and he saw people raising their hands in worship, and it finally sunk into him that Christ raised his hands for us. He allowed them to be nailed on that cross, and that powerful truth became real to him. Dennis was overcome when he realized at a heart level, Christ took my sins. He took my shame. And for the very first time, he began to experience what it meant for Christ to be that treasure that's worth leaving everything to seek. It was then that he realized, I can't live the life that God is inviting me to live. God's going to have to live it through me. Holy Spirit, I need you to be my strength when I'm weak. And he entrusted his past, he entrusted his future into God's hands. If you've never heard someone talk about finding your identity in Christ, it begins right here. Today, when we give the invitation to come forward and receive communion, we're going to start with that song that he wrote. He wrote it, remember, out of his own personal experience. He, he had found his identity once apart from God, and now he found it in God. Many of you are going to recognize this song. We invite you, when that song is sung, to first just take, let it sink in and listen to it. Try to think through his experience, what those words meant, and then make that song your own prayer as well. Well, if you're new to our church, when we commemorate communion, we commemorate this real event. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the cup, 
after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. Now, there's so much that the Bible doesn't say about the sacrament of Holy Communion. It doesn't prescribe a specific age. It doesn't prescribe a specific method. It doesn't prescribe a specific type of bread or wine. But here's what the Bible does say. 1 Corinthians 11:28. Let's examine ourselves. So we want to invite you to do that. The only person today who's going to keep you from the Lord's table, whether it's here at Studio Church right now or at home, the only person that's going to keep you from receiving from the Lord's table is you. If you can sincerely pray these prayers that we pray, we invite you to participate in this event. If you're at home, take a piece of bread, dip it into your wine or your juice. And as you do, remember this is his body, this is his blood which is given for you. And for those of you at Studio Church, I just want to say, hey, I wish I could be there with you, but we had a milestone moment in our family that's worth celebrating, and that's where I'm going to be right now. I would be doing a disservice to this message itself if I wasn't putting my, my family first at, that, at this moment. But I miss being there with you. For you, those of you who are here at Studio Church, there won't be any ushers today. We ask instead that you be listening to the Holy Spirit and at the Holy Spirit's prompting that you would come forward and receive. Let's pray now. Let's make these prayers our own. Please join me. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we're sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word that we will be made clean. Father, I want to pray for my friends who are gathered around um, this conversation. Lord, I pray as we pray throughout this series that anything that came from me that was not from you, whether words or tone, we pray that that would fade away and that what you're trying to say about your heart for people would come through. Your desire to see every person flourish, not just here, but into eternity. Holy Spirit, as you did for, for Dennis, we pray you do that for us. Open our eyes, our hearts, to experience the reality that you are this treasure worth leaving everything to seek after. You are so good. And now, Lord, we join our voices in a prayer that you taught your disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.